0: section ten of chapters on evolution by andrew wilson this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter four concerning protoplasm part two we have however been studying but one phase of protoplasmic existence and as such our knowledge can afford us but little aid towards the consideration of the wider part which this substance plays in the phenomena of both animal and vegetable existence. Selecting the field of plant life for our next essay on the powers and nature of protoplasm, we find in this particular region abundant proof that the peculiarities of protoplasm are in no wise affected by its forming part of the plant regime. Suppose we study under the microscope the nature of the protoplasm which is locked up within the cells of such plant organisms as chara, tradiscantia and vallisneria or within the cells comprising the stinging hair of the nettle's leaf we may readily see that active and incessant motion is the attribute of the imprisoned living matter of the plant cells ceaseless currents of particles agitate the plant protoplasm which but for the insidious operation of osmosis whereby fluids pass in and out of the cells would seem to be literally shut out from all participation in outward or external affairs. The cell of the leaf hair of Tradescantia, for instance, exhibits an incessant flow of protoplasmic granules hurrying steadily in definite directions like the ordered traffic in the streets of a great city. Stream of protoplasmic currents unites with stream, and ceaseless mutation of the contents of the cell is the result. In the nettle hair, the same phenomenon meets the gaze of the microscopist. Here we find the same protoplasmic substance lining the woody matter that forms the external wall of the cell. Constantly does this living lining alter and change its shape with wave-like contractions of its substance, and the granules which exist in the fluid contents of the cell hurry in various directions with the same activity that we remarked in the cell of Tratouscantia. We thus awaken to the fact that in the seemingly inert and unconscious field of plant life there is activity enough if we may but fortify our seeing powers with the microscope and peer a while into the inner recesses and into the nooks and crannies of the vegetable world nor may we neglect to note in passing that upon some higher development of this same protoplasmic sensitiveness and activity than is usual and common in vegetables the marked powers of sensation of such plants as the Venus's fly-trap and the sensitive plants must depend locked up within the hard cell wall, which, as a rule, it is the business of plant growth as distinguished from animal increase to develop. There is little wonder that we have come to regard the plant as an organism which feels not and which is apparently as destitute of all sensation as the world of inorganic things but the deeper view of plant existence shows us the fallacy of the common notion regarding the non-sensitiveness of plants. Their protoplasm is as highly contractile under stimulus as is that of the animal. Conceive of a vegetable cell being ruptured, as indeed takes place in certain phases of lower plant life, and we should find escaping therefrom protoplasm as active as that of our amoeba, and which indeed, would comport itself in an exactly similar fashion to that animalcule consider for instance what takes place in the multiplication of the lower plant life that forms the green mantle of the stagnant pool here in due season the protoplasm found in the interior of the cells of which these green confervi of the stagnant pool are composed Will break up into minute particles, which are duly discharged from custody by the rupture of the cell wall that formerly imprisoned them. These minute bodies, thus liberated, are named zoospores. They flit about in the water and exhibit as free and active an existence as the animalcules which disport themselves side by side with these plant germs. And they likewise exhibit an identity of protoplasmic composition with the lower animals that people the stagnant depths. After a period spent in this active existence, the zoospores settle down and grow each into a new plant resembling that from which it sprang. Or, mayhap, meeting with a fellow spore, a more intricate relationship may be induced, a third and new body may be produced as the result of this contact, and from this new body, foreshadowing the seed of the higher plant, the adult conferva will in due time grow. Thus we find that, in addition to the resemblance between the protoplasm of the animal and that of the plant, in respect of appearance and composition, there exists a closer likeness still in the common movements which protoplasm, whether derived from the animal or the vegetable, exhibits. It is not necessary that we should dwell upon other examples of the marked irritability of protoplasm in lower plant life to demonstrate the community of phenomena which this substance is everywhere seen to exhibit in its simple and primitive condition. The life history of the commonest seaweed that fringes the rocks would show phenomena of similar kind. And would convince us that power of motion, by common consent, the exclusive right and property of the animal, is rather to be viewed as a quality of the protoplasm which forms the living parts of both series of organisms. For, like many of its lower neighbors, the seaweed begins its existence as a minute speck of protoplasm, which possesses from nature a roving commission, and swims about freely in its native waters by means of cilia or filaments, resembling those by which the animalcules propel themselves. Ultimately, this roving life is abandoned for the stay-at-home existence of the mature seaweed, which in due course arises by cell growth and protoplasmic multiplication from the once active spore. Whether studied in the lower animal or in the plant, protoplasm is thus seen to possess essentially the same qualities and properties which everywhere and primarily distinguish it as living matter. It remains to be seen whether the examination of higher animal life will destroy the analogies and similarities which are so plainly apparent in the lower confines of the kingdom of living nature. In its complex entirety, the body of a man appears to present us with no features of structural kind which can serve in the least degree to approximate the higher type, to lower forms and types of life organ and parts in systems and series more or less complicated constitute the framework of the body whose physiology or functional activity is in turn of a correspondingly intricate character the simplest tissue of man's frame would at first sight appear to present a complexity defying reconciliation with any simpler phase of structure or life what seems true of the human type may be held to be equally correct when applied to the case of much lower animals, which appear to be far enough removed in their own way from the primitive simplicity of the protoplasmic amoeba and its allies. A snail or a worm at first sight appears, in fact, to be as distant from the protoplasmic and primitive stage of organization as man himself, in that each is built up of organs exhibiting a complicated structure and highly specialized arrangement of parts. In such a case, what are the likenesses or differences between the higher and lower organisms which the scientific examination of the complex frame reveals? Let anatomy and physiology together furnish the reply. The microscopic anatomy of the tissues of which man's body consists reveals to us a fundamental unity of organization, which is both striking and important in all its particulars and aspects every primer of physiology teaches us the lesson that man's body like the frames of all other animals above the rank of the amoeba and its nearest kith and kin consists of definite layers of minute cells grouped together to form the definite tissues of the body When we speak of the skin, for instance, we are merely indicating a layer of microscopic cells. When we speak of brain tissue, we are again discoursing of cells. And bone itself, in its essential and living parts, is a true cellular tissue. In the human body, it is true, there are muscular fibers, nerve fibers, tendon fibers, and other structures of like nature. But the physiologist points out that the presence of these latter elements does not invalidate his previous statement concerning the universal cellular composition of the frame. For the body at first consists entirely of cells, and most of the fibers of the body, as, for example, the fibers of muscle by means of which we move, or those of the crystalline lens of the eye, can be shown to be formed directly from cells by the elongation or modification of the latter whilst the growth and renewal of all fibers take place through the production of new cell elements. It may be assumed as an axiom of physiology that the bodies of all animals, man included, are formed of cells, which become differentiated to form cellular tissues in the one case, or still further modified to form fibers in the other. Such information, all-important as it undoubtedly is, leaves us, however, on the mere confines of our physiological and anatomical study of the higher frame. To understand clearly the relations of the primitive protoplasmic animalcule with the lord of creation himself, it is needful to pay a little attention to some further details of microscopal study. Suppose that we examine, under the microscope, a transverse section of bone in such research we shall assuredly light upon some facts of interest as assisting our comprehension of the true typical structure of the most complicated organism in nature a cross-section of bone shows us that the apparently solid tissue is everywhere perforated by the minute canals to which clopton havers gave his name and which contain and protect the blood vessels that nourish the bone each aversion canal of bone is seen to be surrounded by concentric circles of bony matter when these circles are minutely examined it is found to consist of elongated spaces called lacunae placed at irregular intervals and which communicate with each other by minute processes called canaliculi. imagine a central lake to be surrounded by circles of smaller lakes the latter communicating with each other by a complex series of branching rivers and a fair idea will be gained respecting the arrangement of the minute elements of a bone in a living bone the disposition of parts is not altered from that disclosed in its microscopic section the blood vessels ministering to the nutrition of the bone traverse the haversian canals already mentioned each lacuna or lake however is occupied by a minute mass of protoplasm which in all essential respects might be compared to an amoeba and the protoplasm of one lacuna sends out minute processes of its substance along the communicating channels already alluded to and thus communicates with the living matter of the neighboring spaces so that could we obtain a perfect view of the living protoplasm of a bone we should find that when removed from the lacunae these living parts would appear before us somewhat like a spider's web and as a connected series of amoeba-like masses of protoplasm adhering together by the minute processes just described and roughly reproducing for us the form and outline of the bone these masses of protoplasm are the cells of the bone on which depend the life nourishment and general welfare of that structure We thus learn the curious fact that the most solid and enduring tissue of our body, in its essential nature, represents a collection of amoeba-like masses of protoplasm absolutely undistinguishable, be it also remarked, in nature, from the similar matter which moves and gropes in the gutters of our housetops or in the stagnant pools. As the plant cell imprisons its protoplasm within a thick cell wall, So our bone cells in like manner form our skeleton by their special manner of growth and development. And it requires no great depth of thought to perceive the similarity of the elements of the human tissue to those which constitute the essentials of lower life at large. Not less striking are the revelations which research into the fundamental structure of the nervous system displays. Nerve cells and nerve fibers together comprise the body's telegraph system the fibers of nerves being primitively formed, like other fibers of the body, from cells. The nerve cell has come to be fully recognized as that part of the nervous mechanism which produces and evolves nerve force, that subtlest of life's forces, now seen to be represented in the movement of a limb and now in the impassioned utterances of mind. The nerve fiber simply carries and distributes the nerve force generated by the cells, but possesses on its own account no power of evolving the characteristic force that in varied fashions rules the wide universe of human life and of lower existence as well when the structure of the brain and spinal cord as the two chief nerve centers of the body is examined both cells and fibers are found to enter into their composition but the cells alone exist in those parts such as the gray or external layer of the brain in which nerve force is evolved nerve cells vary in size and shape they may be simple or complex in form and range from the round or spherical to the branched and irregular in form some of the multipolar nerve cells as those possessing a polarity of processes are named might well enough to suggest to the imaginative mind a resemblance to amoeba in shape as they of a certainty are related to that animacule in the protoplasmic nature of their contents and structure. For the essential element in the nerve cell is protoplasm, pure and simple, undistinguishable in its chemistry and histology from the substance which we discern in the animacule or in the bone cell. Whatever mental powers are exhibited by man or by animals which possess a brain or nerve centers of any kind are the direct products of the nerve energy stowed up within the cells of the nerve centers. And, as we have seen, protoplasm constitutes the essential materies of these cells. That differences of function, wide and apparent, exist between the protoplasm of the bone cell and that of the nerve cell need not be even alluded to as a fact of primary significance when considering the physiology of these varied organs but sufficient for our present purpose is the still broader fact which demonstrates the community of protoplasm as the one living essential of the human frame whether concerned in the work of forming bone secreting bile producing movement or evolving thought thus it remains a stable fact of human existence that on the special qualities and properties of the protoplasm or living contents of cells depend all the actions and the total activity and individuality of our lives. It is by means of protoplasm that the cells of the liver secrete bile. It is through the properties of protoplasm producing new cells that a scratch, heals or other breach of bodily continuity is repaired. And it is by means of a peculiar functional development of this same substance that we are enabled, quote, to lay the flattering unction to our souls, unquote, that we are the possessors of mind, intelligence, and will. It might also be shown as one of the most curious facts of physiology that we harbor in our arteries and veins thousands of protoplasmic specks which, when viewed under the microscope, behave as do veritable amoebae. Such are the white corpuscles of the blood, which may be seen to undergo mutations of form strictly comparable to the changes of shape which give to the amoeba its characteristic aspect, and which alterations from this resemblance have been named amoeboid by the physiologist. Enough has already been said of the structural composition of the human body to show that it derives its living activity from the protoplasm which is everywhere scattered throughout its tissues, and which represents the typical living center of each cell or tissue in which it occurs. But the case for the universality of protoplasm as the true and only medium by which life is exhibited increases in importance when the early outlines and forecasts of development are even briefly chronicled. The nearer we approach the primitive condition of living organisms, the more apparent does the similarity between the earliest stages of all organisms become. An amoeba gives origin to new animalcules by simply dividing its body in two when each half swims away as an independent being to begin life on its own account here there is an absolute and necessary identity of substance between the producer and the produced but even in higher grades of life where the process of development is by no means so simply carried out as in amoeba there is a wonderful similarity between the individual germs of higher animals as well as between such germs in the adult and permanent stages of animacular life no anatomist would venture for instance to express an opinion as to the identity of the germs of the highest class of animals a protoplasmic germ presenting essentially the same structure and appearance as that of the dog and sheep gives origin to man himself and the stages of development which evolve the one are strictly comparable in all save the very latest to those that produce the other thus man arises from a germ of protoplasm measuring about the one hundredth and twentieth part of an inch in diameter the material substance of which cannot be distinguished by any microscopic or chemical tests from that which is destined to give origin to his canine friend or from that of which the shapeless frame of the amoeba is composed indeed the eggs and germs of many animals are strictly amoeba-like in their nature and motions the germ of a sponge creeps about within the parent organism in a fashion undistinguishable from the familiar and there are zoophytes and other animals whose eggs exhibit the same exact amoeba-like appearance which man's own white blood corpuscles evince it is thus a plain fact that whatever complexities of body or of mind we find exhibited in the animal world arise from matter and similar substance that man equally with the monad and the conferva owes his origin to a protoplasmic germ in which are contained all the potentialities and possibilities of his after development is no piece of scientific romance but demonstrable truth protoplasm begins our life as it continues that existence for us and in this respect the amoeba may be regarded as the type of all living things or like the famous freebooter of the ballad as veritable lord of all that lives end of section ten chapter four concerning protoplasm part two